0: Hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Carbon Curve. I'm your host, Naeem Merchant, and this is a podcast about the collective action approach needed to remove billions of tonnes of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and fend off the worst effects of climate change. Before we get started today, I wanted to plug a report I worked on with the amazing team at Carbon Plan about the barriers to growing the carbon removal, or CDR, industry. We interviewed 37 stakeholders across the sector about their perceptions and concerns when it comes to scaling up CDR. I hope this work serves as a crucial starting point to overcoming the challenges to responsibly growing this early industry. You can find a link to the report in the show notes. I hope you find it useful. Today's discussion is about sketching out a vision for the CDR market. Creating that market is gonna be really tricky. Unlike other climate technologies, carbon removal for the most part doesn't deliver a product or service besides its climate benefit. But the market for carbon removal can't exist without large buyers creating consistent demand. In recent months, we've seen the private sector take up that mantle by banding together with other companies to create advanced market commitments, or AMCs, to buy CDR, establishing much-needed demand for this nascent industry. The model is fashioned after AMCs that were used in the global health space to scale up access to vaccines, HIV medicines, and other lifesaving health products in low-income countries. I'm excited to speak to my guest today because he was instrumental in helping shape some of those markets back when we both worked at the Clinton Health Access Initiative, or CHAI, over 10 years ago. Now he's thinking about market shaping in the context of new climate technologies. In my view, despite some key differences, there's some really valuable lessons that we can apply from global health to scaling up CDR. Today's discussion will shed some light on those lessons. I hope you enjoy the show. My guest today, Di Ellis, recently published a series of articles on his newsletter, The Great Unwind, which is really a magnum opus for how we should be thinking about creating a market for carbon removal. In that series, he offers a number of valuable insights and lessons that we can apply from the extensive market shaping toolkit that has been pioneered in the global health sector. This year, we've seen the launch of financing mechanisms like Frontier Climate and First Movers Coalition that are positioned to accelerate the market for carbon removal is excited about the potential for Frontier and other mechanisms to scale up CDR, but he points to the need to go beyond market creation and into market shaping and market stewardship. I'm looking forward to talking about what that looks like in today's episode. Dai is an entrepreneur and executive coach to climate tech founders and CEOs. He helps companies through inflection point moments of rapid growth, typically in the Series A to Series C phase. And his current clients include a range of leading climate tech companies like Arcadia, Sealed, Running Tide, and David Energy. Climate Tech is Dai's third career chapter after long stints in healthcare and education. Most recently, he co-founded a VC-backed startup in Africa called Nova Pioneer, building the first Pan-African network of K-12 schools, offering a world-class education at affordable tuition levels. Even more relevant to our conversation today, Dai previously led the Clinton Foundation's work on creating and shaping markets for drugs, vaccines, and other health products in the developing world. During that stretch of his career, he also chaired the Global Funds Market Dynamics Committee and served as an advisor to the Gates Foundation. Dai, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Naim. and I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. And for the benefit of our, our listeners, let's get some definitions and, and context out of the way. What is an advanced market commitment or AMC and how are AMCs used in improving access to vaccines?
1: Yeah, so uh an AMC is essentially a clear signal of large advanced demand usually from one big buyer meant to, you know, kickstart a market for a new type of product. So it's the AMC saying to the world, if you can bring to market a product that has these features, XYZ, we'll have the funding to buy that up to the tune of XYZ. Right. And you, you can elicit different things as an AMC depending on the stage the market's at. You can elicit more RD or new company formation, investment in manufacturing capacity, but in one form or another, you're taking a market that's in its infant stages and trying to bring the market into being in a bold aggressive way so you know at their most basic amcs are a market creation mechanism what it's not is a commitment to an individual supplier promising that we will buy from you no matter what although it it becomes that with respect to at least a subset of buyers as the amc gets going Um, but initially it's a essentially a signal out to the world and in the case of pneumococcal vaccines high quality vaccines had already been developed, but they weren't being sold at any scale in the developing world as, as you've written about. Um, and the AMC was a way to say to suppliers, please do take the calculated risk of investing in dedicated manufacturing capacity to meet developing world needs. And if you do, we're ready to buy. That's a great rundown. And you know
0: we've heard a lot about frontier climate, which is you know, partly fashioned around how vaccines were used in global health, uh, but before we get into that, you know what is Frontier and what problem is it trying
1: to solve in the context of carbon dioxide removal? So, so Frontier is an AMC for carbon dioxide removal or CDR, uh, but for a particular type of carbon removal. You know the two primary things that are distinct about the subset of carbon removal Frontier wants to purchase are. One, functional permanence. So, meaning, you know, the carbon removed from the atmosphere stays out for a thousand years or more. And two, what I think of as unimpeachable additionality, right? Not just likely, hopefully, maybe this is something that would have happened if we didn't buy these tons of carbon, but definitely this carbon removal wouldn't have happened but for our purchase. Um, And, you know, Frontier is basically trying to solve a problem that is rooted in this scientific consensus that we're going to need large-scale permanent CDR to solve this century's climate emergency. That's reflected in the latest IPCC reports, but we're we're nowhere close to having the capacity, the science, and and ultimately the ginormous market or industry we're going to need to deliver permanent CDR at multi-gigaton scale. And Frontier is trying to kickstart that market to to get it snowballing in the right direction, just like we've seen with solar and with lithium-ion batteries. Uh, and the single most important thing Frontier is doing toward that end is just jacking up early demand for permanent CDR, right? Like we said before, if you build it, we'll be there to buy it. So that's the the guts of it. But there's a couple of things worth calling out about Frontier's approach. Um, first is that it's very explicitly trying to nurture and elicit a lot of different CDR technologies and approaches and suppliers and so forth, right? And the, the Frontier folks call this maximizing shots on goal. Uh, and then second, the Frontier team does a great job of just reminding everyone that it knows its place in the universe. It's, it's not trying to pretend that CDR progress can take the edge off of our emissions reduction imperative. You know, clearly we, we need to be putting the vast majority of our collective talent and dollars and political attention into reducing our emissions that's problem a number 1 but what frontier is also saying is that we don't you know we don't need to frame a conflict between these two things we need to be pursuing both emissions reduction and permanent cdr scale up in parallel you know, if we if we only have this one swimming pool to swim in, let's start fishing the turds out of the pool, even as we work to get everyone to start dropping new turds. That's to be clear, that's my language, not Frontiers.
0: <laughs> so in your view, what challenges does Frontier face that are different from how
1: you know advanced market commitments are used in global health? So yeah, let's let's again take this pneumo vaccine AMC as an example, since that was the biggest AMC to date and the one that uh, directly inspired Frontier. Of all the differences, and there are a lot between the market situation that the pneumo vaccine AMC walked into and the one that Frontier is walking into, a couple things in particular stand out. the The quality assurance challenge and the market size challenge. So maybe we can just talk a bit about each. As regards quality, um, you know the Numo AMC faced a far easier task in a couple of ways. For, for starters, it didn't have to deal with nearly as much heterogeneity. It was trying to kickstart the market for one specific type of product fitting a narrow target profile, while Frontier is trying to kickstart the market for a whole range of CDR technologies that require a diverse set of methods for how you assess quality. Frontier and other CDR buyers also have to assess a wider range of quality considerations, right? Because with vaccines, you've got to feel confident in just a few things, quality, safety, and efficacy, basically. But MRV for CDR has to cover broader ground, additionality, net negativity, permanence, safety, second order, environmental impacts, and, and so forth. And then on top of all that, the pneumo amc was able to ride on all this pre-existing qa machinery in a world where we already knew how to confirm vaccine quality right back then we had three things in hand already we had the, the technical methods and tools to assess quality like clinical trials and biomarkers we had the standards to serve as the basis for quality determinations and and then critically we had trusted verifiers most importantly the world health organizations vaccine pre-qualification program to make and defend those dis- determinations. But with permanent CDR, MRV, we don't yet have any of those three. But Frontier can't function without a rigorous MRV approach any more than the NUMO AMC could have said, hey, we'll just rely on Pfizer's own assurances that you know it's producing quality vaccines. And then the second big one, setting quality aside, is this um, challenge of market size. Where the pneumo AMC, it had to create a pot big enough to help suppliers kind of get over the hump of scaling up vaccine production to serve unmet need in developing countries, but the projected market size in the decade after that first AMC period wasn't order of magnitude, wasn't orders of magnitude bigger than the market size during the middle of the AMC period, but with permanent CDR we need to be building toward a trillion dollar multi gigaton market that is orders of magnitude bigger than where the market will be even by 2030, let alone, you know, next couple of years. And so Frontier's got this initial pot of a billion or so, uh, which is about two thirds the size of the Numo AMC. and And that pot is kind of both huge and tiny at the same time, right? It's huge in the sense of current demand. You couldn't possibly deploy that kind of money to spend on high quality delivered tons today, but mapping backward from where we need to be by mid-century and what that implies about projected CDR market size by 2030, Frontier's funds, even if they grow five or tenfold, will only be a modest piece of the puzzle, right? So Frontier has this added challenge of ferrying the market across an early chasm to something far, far bigger.
0: And I think it's important to be able to kind of appreciate what Frontier's trying to do, and the way they're approaching it, but also be you know very clear-eyed about just how different the challenge that they're trying to solve here is. The first big AMC was implemented for pneumococcal vaccines, but market shaping as a discipline ended up getting extended to many other products and diseases in global health. Could you tell us a little bit more about how market shaping approaches were applied to HIV treatment?
1: Yeah. So as you said, over the last 20 years, market shaping has become a whole thing in global health. You know, it's a a discipline, an intellectual project, an expanding toolkit that goes way beyond AMCs. And the, the best way to grok what market shaping means is to look at concrete examples. It all started with Chai's work on HIV, AIDS drugs about 20 years ago. And so if we, uh, if we hop in our little hot tub time machine and and zoom back to 2002, there were, at the time there were already more than 25 million people living with HIV across the globe, but in the developing world, less than 1% of those people had access to life-saving treatment. You know, activists were urging public health leaders and governments to expand treatment, but Oh, man, the, the cynicism they ran into. Almost no one believed it was possible to do treatment at scale. Most opinion leaders thought we should focus on preventing HIV transmission instead. And there were a bunch of reasons why. Not enough trained to doctors and nurses, supply chain challenges. But, but the biggest thing people pointed to was high drug prices. Just like you know, DAC today might cost $500 or $1,000 a ton or whatever, Prices for life-saving antiretroviral drugs at the time, uh, they're called ARVs, were $1,000 or $2,000 per patient per year. So how were low-income countries gonna treat tens of millions of patients at those kinds of prices? But if you fast forward back to today, nearly 30 million people are now on treatment. You know, Drug prices have plummeted to less than $75 per patient per year. New funding has flooded in and HIV, has become a manageable condition you can live with. So the question is, how did that happen? And the first thing we had to do, just like with CDR today, was to break through the chicken and egg dynamic. You know, Basically, drug prices were so high because demand and production volumes were so low, um, but demand was low because prices were sky high. And an AMC at the time could have helped break that stalemate, but the concept hadn't even been invented yet. And so instead, Chai stepped in to help Try and solve that dynamic in a different way by creating a buyers club, and pioneering what we called cost-plus negotiations with suppliers. So, so Chai went out to about 13 governments, and it organized them into the beginnings of a buyers club and helped them build these sophisticated models to forecast how they could afford to uh, scale up national HIV treatment programs, if drug prices started to fall. Um, So we, we built this aggregate demand forecast and Chai then took that to uh, a group of four generic drug manufacturers in India and we went through an exercise with them where we did a deep dive forensic cost analysis with them and, and worked to project what would the cost levels be at the implied production volumes 12 to 18 months down the road. And then, this was the critical thing, we asked them to take the first leap of faith, to to offer tomorrow's prices to the Buyer's Club today as a way just to get the market kickstarted, right? And the outcome was a a landmark deal announced in, I think it was October 2003, committing those suppliers to ARV price ceilings as low as $140 per patient per year for the cheapest available regimen. And that that deal got the virtuous cycle going, demand started to grow, then prices fell a bit further, boosting demand a bit more, and so forth. But in some ways, that that was the easy part. Well that makes me feel pretty hopeful. I mean, the the huge advancement that we've
0: seen in HIV treatment, thanks to you know conscious market shaping approaches that the Clinton Health Access Initiative and others kind of took around HIV treatment, but in your pieces, you talk to the importance of distinguishing between market creation, which I think is where initiatives like Frontier are kind of at right now, mm-hmm. and market
1: shaping. So
0: tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, totally. You know, as so we, this deal was done, and then we're observing the market in those early months and years, and we quickly saw it becoming a mixed bag. It, it had some healthy dynamics but also some deeply unhealthy ones like slow uptake of new products or occasional predatory pricing or you know, quality wobbles or whatever. And it, it became increasingly clear to us that kickstarting the market hadn't been enough. You know this, this market could still play out as a good movie or as a bad movie. And we needed to shape the ARV market aggressively towards this thriving, healthy, huge market that we believed it could become. But doing that meant expanding our ability essentially to carry out shuttle diplomacy and kind of relentless barrier whacking across all sides of the market. So we, we had these strong supplier relationships, but we also progressively built out a big demand side presence with teams in more than 20 countries. And Chai also built trusted partnerships with all these other market actors who, you know, affected the market without directly buying or selling. So, you know, opinion leaders and activists, regulators and donors. Um, and in my posts, I highlighted a particularly important example of the kind of ongoing market shaping that we had to tackle, which was stewarding the market through this big paradigm shift as some next-generation ARVs started to hit the market. Because in the early years, most patients were put on a stavidine-based drug regimen that was the, the cheapest option, but those regimens kind of sucked. They, they had to be taken twice a day. They caused significant side effects. And a, a new class of tenofovir-based regimens started to hit the market that offered way better outcomes, but initially cost about five times as much. And the Gates Foundation and others were arguing against shifting patients to tenofovir regimens, saying they're, they're just too damn expensive and it's just gonna mean fewer people getting access to treatment. But activists and Chai and partners in health and others came together to urge the global health community to kind of play the long game. You know, if we can accelerate this market shift, the price premium would eventually disappear. You know, easy to say, hard to do, right? So, so much had to happen to pull that off. And Chai's presence on all sides of the market enabled it to kind of play a quarterback role, um, coordinating across all these different actors involved in improving information flows. So within uh, 12 or 18 months, Chai helped parallel process many things that would have otherwise happened in serial. So anything from urging generic manufacturers to submit their tenofovir dossiers ASAP to the WHO or FDA, retraining health workers to prescribe the new regimens, influencing the WHO's next round of updates to their HIV treatment guidelines, I remember interrupting a vacation to write a long memo to Bill Gates, trying to convince him at least that his skepticism was off base and reworking demand forecasts and harmonizing regulatory requirements, just a lot of different things that you know, would have eventually happened, but they would have happened stepwise and pretty slowly. And eventually that collective effort pulled off a much faster than expected market shift and the, the 5X price premium fell to, I think like 3X pretty quickly and then eventually fell below even the old Stabatine prices. And what I remember from that time is just like every new barrier encountered, we just tried to pull out all the stops we could dream up. We, we built out a team of process chemists to help suppliers improve their yields on active ingredient manufacturing. Or if we found some specialty chemical was like 10% of the cost structure, we'd have you know a team on a train to inland China the next week to go meet with that upstream supplier and try and negotiate a, a bulk discount for our partner ARV suppliers, just kind of grinding it out. you know
0: and that quarterbacking role i think was absolutely critical from my point of view in making that shift from stavadin to tanofibear i was working in malawi around that that the time of that transition it just wasn't enough to have that market created you needed someone to help you know coordinate across all of these different stakeholders in order to get everyone from countries that were donating significant amounts of money to to create this market all the way to ministers of health, to nurses and doctors at health facilities comfortable with making this shift. And so it actually played a big role in in translating a lot of the things that were happening kind of upstream into um, effects that, that really benefited patients. So what are some parallels between market shaping and global health and the potential for market shaping in carbon removal.
1: Yeah, you know, a big, a big part of what's made me dive deep on CDR as I've gotten into the climate world is just how strong the echoes are of this situation with HIV treatment 20 years ago. In terms of parallels, there's, there's a couple of things I think we can learn about the mindset we can bring to CDR and, and then a handful of things that are more about what works in market shaping. And on the, on the mindset front, lesson number one is Think big. You know, in 2002, anyone saying we'll have 30 million people on cheap HIV treatment within 20 years would have been laughed out of the room. And if, I think same today, if you step outside the tiny world of CDR believers and tell people we'll have a trillion dollar CDR industry by mid-century removing 10 plus gigatons of carbon a year and, you know, consuming a third of the world's total energy production or whatever, you know, make up your numbers, you might get the same reaction. But and this I don't credit to Chai, at least not primarily. It was, it was the dream big, do what's right, damn the torpedoes voices in the early years of HIV treatment, who changed that conversation. It was the activists first and foremost. And what, what sets us apart as a species is the power of our collective imagination, which in some ways, you know, by inventing carbon spewing technologies, has has gotten us into this mess, and we, we need to use that same power to get us out of it. And the the second mindset parallel is kind of exposing and exploding false binaries because our our brains are just wired to oversimplify as a survival instinct instinct but we fall into these either or framings so easily uh you know in the, in the climate conversation we hear about reducing emissions versus cdr or nature-based solutions versus engineered solutions and with hiv aids it was stavidine versus tenofovir or prevention versus treatment and in, in the early days you know advocates of hiv prevention were arguing that scaling up treatment was a like doomed to fail and b so long as it you know we pursued it would steal resources and leadership attention from prevention programs right sounds sounds a little bit like what we're hearing in the climate world these days those are important kind of mindset parallels
0: and i think you know, the one around think big is particularly important in, in a, a world where we're starting to see some economic headwinds. You know, we've seen some think big moves from frontier and, and others. And I think it's it's going to be time for governments to step up and think big around CDR in order to take this next step in, in scaling it up. But you, you mentioned some other parallels on what works. So what were some of the things that we can learn from the actual work around market shaping and global health for carbon removal?
1: Yeah. So a couple things we've touched on already and then a couple we haven't. So so one thing we already alluded to was just, you know, we need to be thinking about ongoing market shaping and not just market creation. Right. We can't just create a big CDR market. Uh, today's voluntary carbon offset market should be enough to scare us straight. Right. There, There is such a thing as a sizable, shitty market. <laughs> Markets sorting themselves out is an outright myth. And so we need to be active shapers of the market we want and not takers of market dynamics as as they are today. And then the other idea we hit on earlier was this idea of iterative technology paradigm shifts. So just like the ARV market shifted from a Stavidine era to a Tanofovir era and it's since moved on, the, you know, the leading CDR technologies that we have in 2025 are unlikely to be the winners in 2037 or 2042 or whatever. Um, and when the new technologies come to the market, they're usually going to start at the high end of the price spectrum. Probably almost always because the sort of more disruptive patterns unlikely to bear out here. And so they'll start high before they come down the cost curve and this chicken and egg problem is going to be a, a recurring one. So we can't let ourselves become prisoners of whatever's working today, as we as we almost did with the Stabidine trap. You know, even as some early winner CDR companies start to get below hundred dollar prices at commercial scale, we need to be careful not to prematurely kill or, or even just let languish the next generation CDR possibilities that are in their infancy, just because they're high cost and you know speculative at that stage. And then there's like maybe two more parallels we haven't dwelled on yet. So one is basically just Pedal to the metal, you know, kind of a corollary to think big, but as regards cost reduction and generally as regards speed as a habit, you know, just like PV panels and lithium-ion batteries, but even more dramatically so, we need to be sprinting to deploy as fast as humanly possible while wringing every last ounce of cost out of the system. This market's gonna reward the cost obsessed and the fast movers and and we have to be parallel processing at every turn. And one related thing I'll point out is that from global health, you know, the, the pharmaceutical supply base isn't just in the U.S. and Europe, even within the generic industry, the Indian suppliers ate everyone else's lunch because they won on cost and CDR supply will, will start out heavily concentrated in the U.S. and Europe, but we should be imagining and accelerating a truly global supply base for this. And then the last lesson I'd underscore is just about quarterbacking, you know, full pedal to the metal requires all this concerted and aligned action across many different players in the market. And what our experience in global health teaches us is that it's easier to pull that off with a quarterback taking the lead on coordination. So Chai played that quarterback role in the ARV market. um, And in in a few situations, we had real buying power like Frontier. But generally, we used our soft power flowing from our relationships and the track record we built to to change behavior by cajoling and informing and negotiating and supporting and such like and such forth. And so when we
0: more directly apply market shaping to the CDR market, your series of articles set out six building blocks of a market shaping vision for carbon removal. We have quality assurance and MRV, transparency, pricing, technology evolution, geography, and financial acceleration. These are all important and interconnected, but take us through your top two or three in terms of urgency. What building blocks do we need to
1: stand up first? This is a hard one uh, because all of these things are gonna be so foundational for the market. But when I think about urgency, I think about where are the biggest near-term risks that might prevent the market from starting to snowball in the right direction, right? And with that lens, I think the biggest one, the honker is quality. So maybe let's start by just putting a finer point on the kind of quality conundrum because with pneumococcal vaccines, we we weren't really trying to make any special claims about quality, right? Just that these new vaccines would be of similar quality to any other existing vaccine, but with permanent CDR differentiated quality is the whole premise of this new market frontier is trying to help create. We're trying to say that this is the first carbon removal, the first type of carbon offset that is truly additional and permanent. And many are arguing that nothing else should count as an offset, but we're setting out to build a market whose superpower is quality from a starting point where quality assurance is our biggest current kryptonite. You know what I mean? Like earlier on, we talked about these extra quality challenges, frontier faces that didn't bedevil the pneumo AMC and also this concept of a a race. And more specifically, we're in a race on a couple of tracks, an R&D race, basically, to make sure that MRV tools and methods keep up with CDR deployment. But then also this MRV market architecture race to ensure that reasonably rigorous MRV standards and trusted verifiers emerge as fast as the permanent CDR market shifts from niche to mainstream. Because in the long run, As permanent CDR prices get way lower, the typical buyer won't be the kind of enlightened Stripe or Shopify buyer that we've been lucky to have in the early days. Your your typical mass market buyer will be the same kind of buyer we see in today's voluntary carbon market. And, And obviously those buyers aren't all out there trying to buy fraudulent offsets, but if they can buy a socially acceptable offset that's at the cheaper end of the spectrum and contributes to their carbon accounting claims, they'll happily do that, right? And so what will make those buyers shift to buying higher permanence forms of CDR is that it'll gradually become less socially acceptable and or harder from a compliance perspective to buy lower permanence forms of CDR for the purposes of offsetting and net zero targets. But you know, as those buyers enter the high durability CDR market, the, the, the million dollar question is how easy or hard will it be for them to buy tons of more dubious quality, right? Where we're in a much better place if they enter a market where there are dominant, rigorous MRV standards and a trusted approach to verification, because if if those mass market era buyers effectively have no choice but to get on the rigor train, they'll do that. But if they enter a market that's still MRV Wild West, where it's you know socially defensible to choose to rely on either higher or lower rigor standards or verifiers or providers, nothing's going to stop a big subset of buyers from choosing whatever's cheapest. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And, you know,
0: I, I had the opportunity to publish a report around kind of the barriers to scaling up carbon removal. And, you know, one of the questions we asked was, you know, how big of a concern are third party standards to scaling up CDR? And I think a lot of the carbon removal providers were just like, this is not an immediate concern right now, but we know in our heart of hearts that if we want this market to grow and mature, we've got to figure this out. So I think that makes a ton of sense. And kind of thinking about it is, what is the kind of a risk to scaling up carbon removal, especially given just the amount of time it's going to take to get some of these systems in place? What else would be the on the top of your urgency
1: list? Yeah, first off, quick plug. Loved that report. Anyone who hasn't read it should uh, go out and give it a read. Um, for my money, the other big one is transparency. And at, at one level, we're off to a good start on this front because. Apart from the maximize shots on goal mentality, the other element of Stripe and Shopify's early approach that I really admire is this transparency they've modeled. They've been transparent about their criteria and their portfolio construction process, and they've demanded transparency from their CDR suppliers and they've made funding applications open source. And so you can see some of that mentality seeping out into the market. I think about Heirloom's recent white paper. I think about Charm putting its MRV proto protocol out there a couple weeks ago and so on. Um, but why does transparency matter so much as a foundational building block? I think there's a couple of reasons. One is that information asymmetries cause dysfunction. They, they prevent coordinated actions. They prevent informed decisions. They slow things down and transparency, on the other hand, shortens learning cycles and is a real turbo booster. But the other big reason is transparency boosts public trust. You know, in your discussion with Chris last week, you were saying how you worry about things like social license and governance and trust even more than you worry about, you know, science and deployment and cost. And clearly, you know, that that kind of stuff is game-set match when it comes to things like solar radiation management, but it's similarly important for CDR and and on a s- spectrum from a more kind of closed, proprietary, opaque system to a more radically transparent or open market reality, I think our chances of success are just much higher if all kinds of practices and information gravitate toward transparency. And with CDR, there's so many types of transparency that are going to matter, right? Costs and, price, uh, costs and prices and sales trends, demand forecast deployment projections, but also things like Transparency around citing decisions and labor and supply chain practices and new technology developments, environmental impacts. I mean, the list goes on. Um, And the last thing I'd say about these two, the the quality thing and the transparency thing is they're linked because we need we need transparency on MRV itself, whether it's what's what verifier was relied upon for a given transaction or what were the underlying MRV standards or methods that were the basis for approval or you know the cost of mrv as a fraction of the purchase price or any 10 years accounting or discounting that happened and so you know um that's uh that's a great example i think of where we face uh big risks um in the in the early going a lot of suppliers are playing their mrv cards pretty close to the chest and understandably seeking ip protection and treating mrv details kind of as the province of a private supplier buyer relationship or transaction and you can understand that mentality up to a point, but it also poses a, a huge risk. And Frontier is going to need to decide how much of that drift away from transparency it's going to tolerate. And just to add a finer point
0: on the importance around transparency, I was reading the UK government's public consultation document on creating a business model for greenhouse gas removals, they, they call it uh, GGR, because I am... I, um, I spend my you know I spend my evenings and weekends reading long documents published by governments around supporting or accelerating <laughs> carbon removal uh, but but it, it was interesting to read that one of their big hesitations around supporting government procurement of carbon removal is the lack of price discovery they just yeah. don't know what's a fair price to pay for carbon removal when that data doesn't exist and so that transparency around cost helps Address that, and I think it's actually going to be really critical to crowding in more resources to scale carbon removal, especially as you get to more risk-averse buyers like governments, for example.
1: could agree more.
0: I feel like what you set out in in this series of articles is, you know, a roadmap for a funder wanting to engage strategically in this space. Right? Where can they be most catalytic? Mm. And that's what I I loved about it. What motivated you to do this work, and where would you like to see this go from here?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, a couple of, a couple of people have asked me what what my own angle is, and I feel kind of stupid because I don't really have a good answer. I, I had all this stuff swimming around in my head, um, forty pages worth. It turned out, and it, it just felt really good to dump it out there to the community. Like, it felt like a, a release and and the response and kind of level of engagement has been really heartwarming. So in that sense, it was just kind of a partly selfish public service. But I think what, what you allude to on the roadmap idea really resonates. I, I definitely don't see this as like a, you know, a set of one and done blog posts. I see market shaping as something that will become a whole discipline in climate tech and the green transition just like it did in global health. You, you mentioned earlier, you know, since Chai's work on ARVs in the early going market shaping tactics have just been applied across global health to other products like diagnostics and malaria bed nets and lots of other disease areas and the Gates Foundation and USAID and others have adopted it as a strategy and built teams around it. That's the movie that's going to play out in climate too. You can just see it coming. Um, There's There's things like this already happening in climate you know frontier obviously but but also what rewiring america is doing or what watershed is starting to do with its marketplace work or you name it it's just that no one's calling these things market shaping or and there's no as yet you know kind of coherent intellectual effort to build it as a discipline the way that happened in in global health and so already since i put these pieces out there just in the last couple of months i've gotten pulled into a couple conversations about How to bring a market shaping approach to next generation cooling technologies or how might we launch a volume guarantee to accelerate kelp production in in alaska and more and so both inside and outside cdr you know where where might this go from here i think for me personally i i think i'll end up probably looking for a perch where i can do market shaping work from an organizational base where you've got some significant market power or soft power to deploy, but way more importantly is that I'm just hoping that, you know, we can play some small role in seeing this become a well-developed discipline for CDR and for climate tech more generally. And like you said, I think one of the obvious next steps is for one or more funders to get behind this line of thinking and really take some ownership of fleshing it out, doing some field building around it looking for places to prove it out and generate some quick wins and and just looking for ways to more publicly narrate what's actually already happening with this lens or through this lens. And so if I were a foundation trying to find a way to play a distinctive role on climate, I'd strongly consider adopting market shaping as just as a unique angle on the problem and seeing how far I could run with it. Yeah, that's really cool. I'd love to see this become a discipline
0: in climate tech and carbon removal specifically especially since we're talking about carbon removal as a public good in the way that a lot of the interventions around health you could consider public goods as well thanks again for the time di i'll be sharing your excellent series in the show notes i highly recommend our listeners give all of that a read and if people want to get in touch with you and take the conversation further how do they do that
1: Um, Well, I hope we can find some easy way to just, you know, put the right contact information in the show notes so people can reach out to you and get to me that way. Just really eager to find more thought partners on this stuff. You and I have spent some time talking about, you know, where we could take this stuff and just geeking out on it because it's a shared interest and really eager to connect with others. I don't know how big our club of former global health jockeys now working the cdr beat like you and me is going to get but i'm glad you and i are in the club together and uh just looking for more people to kind of come dance the funky chicken with us and uh, yeah thanks again for having me on the show i'm an eager carbon curve subscriber it's an honor to be on and just following in your footsteps uh, trying to figure this stuff out thanks so much ty